Okay, this time round we're going to be looking at The Nickel Ride, which is a 1974 movie directed by Robert Mulligan, written by famed screenwriter Eric Roth, and starring Jason Miller. It's the story of Cooper, a fix-it man for the mob, who's trying to set up a big warehouse deal for fencing stolen goods, but it's getting pressure from all sides and it's running out of time. I came to it through a recommendation in Sight and Sound. Oh, okay. They do a monthly column about lost good movies, rarities that aren't available on home video in the UK. When was that? When was that article? It was when I had a subscription, so that must have been at least four years ago. Oh, yeah, okay. Maybe even longer, maybe five, six years ago. And I immediately, it said it was available in a double bill DVD from America, so I kind of looked that up and, and added it to a wish list because it wasn't worth the cost of shipping and import tax and all that. Um, and then recently on a holiday in America finally added it to the cart and picked it up in America oh, yeah, okay. and got to watch it and it was Very absolutely canny. yeah canny planning absolutely blown away by it and really really wanted to talk about it and I think you watched it because I foisted it on you yeah well it's one of those where you said have you seen The Nickel Ride and it's like so what did you say is that, is that a film The Nickel Ride doesn't even sound like a film and you know, I consider myself fairly film literate so I figured I would have at least heard about it at some point in my reading and in fact doing the research for this I went through all my kind of film books I've got books gangster books and books on crime films you know from the 70s 80s 90s and even some of the Pauline Kael books I couldn't find a mention of it mm. anywhere it's it's really it's, oh, oh, like gone yeah quick bit of background I guess I just had a look on the American film Institute's catalogue and they're talking about the actual production mm. so the dates shooting from autumn 73 in LA and then it going to Cannes in 74 I think mm. it was received well at Cannes it was in contention for the Palme d'Or and then the European distribution just didn't bring in any, any money at all so he was Robert Mulligan was disillusioned recut it cut out a scene which was supposed to feature Cooper's brother a couple of scenes yeah. the whole subplot released it in the States and it just it flopped and I think it was on series of flops that he'd had. But I mean, looking, I mean, there's a lot of films of his that I haven't seen but have heard of since To Kill a Mockingbird. There's um, Love with a Proper Stranger, Inside Daisy Clover, Summer of 42, I remember, and The Other, which I actually saw a couple of years ago. Yeah, after um, watching the video essay and doing a bit of research, I do really fancy The Other now. I think that looks like a really interesting movie. Mm. You've seen it, right? I've seen it. Um, I didn't really like it at the time, but it was probably my frustration with the source material. Oh, yeah. It was based on a Thomas Tryon novel, and it's... I haven't read the novel, but I've read one of his other novels, Harvest Home, which was always really lauded when I was growing up. It's, oh, you've got to read Harvest Home. And I read it, and I was kind of bitterly disappointed with it. Okay. And I was kind of disappointed with the source material of the other as well, so mm -hmm. I was kind of judging it by the story and oh, not yeah, by the right. filmmaking. There's a couple of other movies on his IMDb that I fancy, having, again, seen a few clips of them. Um, Fear Strikes Out? Yeah. That looks yeah. really interesting. Yeah. And again, I've never heard of that. And what was the Western? The Stalking Moon. Right. It's the Western that he made. Yeah, that from the clips on the, on the YouTube doc that you sent me looked really good. Yeah, it looks really good. Yeah. A name I was surprised by in the credits uh, was Eric Roth, who's like... Yeah. He's one of those names who's so famous these days, you wouldn't necessarily have thought he'd be working in the 70s. Some, everybody starts somewhere, <laughs> don't they? This is literally where he started. Yeah, it's his second produced movie script. Um, and he went on to make, you know, varied and often interesting movies like The Onion Field, Wolfen suspect and then hit hit the jackpot with Forrest Gump yeah yeah that's but it. then even since then he's been making stuff like Insider Ali Munich the I thought not too bad script for A Star Is Born recently oh yeah okay 
He's writing Killers of the Flower Moon for Scorsese. Oh right. Oh. And he's one of the one of the writers on the new Dune adaptation. Oh right. Okay. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> That's really solid. Yeah, because I think there's a sort of period after this where he's still kind of for hire and yeah. ghostwriting and you know I think it takes a little while for him to get and you know it's another 10 15 years before he gets proper traction but it's it's solid growth isn't it it's not like you mm. know a sudden well, this is fantastic the writing in this film is yeah. is incredible this is this is a, an original script of his originally called 5050 that's right and it was originally you know more about somebody who was turning 50 and it's the whole thing is based in their paranoia and fear about about middle age and being replaced and yeah, yeah, becoming that's obsolete. It. Roth was talking about making a film that, that centers on somebody that has anxiety and what kind of job they would be in that makes that compounded, you know, mm. and obviously being in the middle of the, the mafia and mm. the criminal underworld with a, a, an existential crisis is just going to really, you know, <laughs> it's going to really affect your uh, paranoia, isn't it? Mm. So the next name we've got on my list of notes is... Um, Jordan Cronenworth. This Again. is our <laughs> this is our third Jordan Cronenworth movie. I know. I think it's time to change the name, isn't it, to the Jordan Cronenworth Fan Club or something? <laughs> Again, my God, like solid photography, isn't it? Just I'd I'd say more than solid. I, this is a theme we're going to return to throughout the whole of the podcast. It's that something that's considered like a a, a middling pot boiler, you know, just like a, a fairly forgotten nondescript crime movie, just looks fabulous yeah. from start to finish. My God. Jordan Crenworth, Conrad Hall's camera operator for many, many films in a row, and then started shooting his own. I think prior to this, he'd shot Brewster McLeod for um, Robert Altman. Um, and then obviously he goes on to make films that we've talked about and films that are legendary, Altered States, Blade Runner, yeah. Cutter's Way, Stop Making Sense. And this is the same, um, the production designer that he's working with here. Yes. It's the production designer that also goes on to Blade Runner with him. Yeah. And um, you sort of see that, once you know that, and you kind of look at the way they've shot L.A., and this idea that they didn't want to spruce it up and make it a Hollywood mm. version of LA, they just wanted to see the dirt and the grit and the, and the underworld. Mm. I was surprised again in that documentary, um, which we'll I guess we'll link to. Yeah, well, yeah, definitely. Yeah, Adam Zanzi's uh, excellent video essay on the making of the Nickel Ride. I think he's gone out and spoke to everybody that was still alive, basically, <laughs> or like tracked them down, or you know, been in touch with them. It's really informative, and you know, for a film that I hadn't heard of a couple of weeks ago watched fell in love with and couldn't find any data on like mm. to, to fi finally find something about the making of it. it was such a relief and so insightful so yeah we'll be linking to that definitely mm. now he mentions on that 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 um cronenworth had experimented with flashing yeah, that's right um it stopped short of saying whether or not he uses it on this movie but it's it was odd it was one of the notes that i made there's a couple of shots throughout there was the one scene uh where paulie comes to visit um, mm. Coop at the bar, you yeah, whilst yeah. he's having his birthday dinner, mm -hmm. and there's—I mean, it's—it's it's not a flashy shot, but it's a wide shot of the bar, and it reminds me so much of like Vilmos Sigmund when he used to flash things. Oh yeah, okay. In in Altman movies and stuff. It gives um, them a higher exposure. Yeah, gives the interiors kind of like a warm glow, and the exteriors like this kind of diffuse light. Yeah, yeah, it's really yeah, nice. It's really lovely. It's yeah. frustrating. That it's just a DVD, isn't it? That it's, that... I know. I'm gonna be. I'm gonna be campaigning for it i wrote to sh <laughs> I, no, I wrote to shout factory oh, last you? night and oh, said really? <laughs> and said uh, you know like a really heartfelt paragraph saying mm. any chance you could put it out and i got an instant response oh really yeah saying no we've got no plans for that um so i'm going to try um indicator and mm. eureka and all those other people who 
you know, like s smaller films and will do it, do it justice. It, it sort of should be obligatory now for Hollywood to restore anything that Jordan Cronenworth has yes. shot <laughs> to like whatever the current highest spec is yeah. and to maintain that. That should be an ongoing program in perpetuity of Jordan Cronenworth. Well, v Vilmos does quite well. You've got 4K discs of Close Encounters and the mm. Deer Hunter out there. But oh, yeah, yeah, Jordan should be top of the list for yeah. many of his films. Um, and finally, obviously... Uh, oh, Nicholas Brown? Yes. The editor. The editor. He's a very good journeyman editor. He's had a very varied career. Um, went on to make things like Free Willy and City Slickers and Rambo 3. Rambo 3, yeah. Peter yeah. McDonald's uh, crowning achievements. <laughs> it's really good, Rambo 3. Um, but you'll, you know, you also work with Altman on California Split and Jonathan Kaplan on The Accused. I, it's funny, I can't remember his name because when he was asked about this movie, he can't remember much about it. <laughs> So most of the people involved can't remember much about this, except that mm, I didn't really like it very much at the end. Yeah, there seems to be a sort of uh, yeah ambiguity, doesn't there, between collective amnesia? Yeah, I'd say. yeah, and yeah, the the experience seems good, but I think people were plexed by the end product. And I can't understand why. Yeah, it does everything it sets out to do brilliantly. Yeah, yeah, I think you know the first time you watch it, it's it's changing structure halfway through is a little bit deflating. But the second time, it's so rewarding that they're so brave to, to make that decision to just pull everything out. The last one on my list is um, music by Dave Grusin. Oh, yeah, okay. Do you know Dave Grusin? Have you come across him before? Uh, no, I made some notes on the work that he's done, like Mulholland Falls, Tequila Sunrise, Goonies, Tootsie, The Champ, The Yakuza, and The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Yeah. Um, but he seems a bit like a Lalo Schifrin. Yeah, he's done music films I've liked but I've never liked the music he's done for them. He's too light entertainment for me. Yeah, right. And he's, he's, he's the <laughs> musical musical metaphor here. He just strikes the wrong note for this movie for me. <laughs> I think it, it starts off okay, and then it's like he just sort of runs out of yeah. effort. I really like that stuff at the beginning, which is very Lalo Schifrin with the... Um, uh, chicky, 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 soul, soul shake or whatever the hell it is. Mm. Yeah, I really like that stuff. It's really... I think I think the palette of instruments is right, but it's just the music just isn't dark enough. It's a bit too kind of mildly jazzy. I think if you were going for this sort of thing, you would have been better off. You know, if you think about Michael Small and David Shire and the scores they did for the Conversation and um, oh, yeah, okay. and Parallax View. Mm -hmm. uh, oh yeah, yeah. And definitely Clute. Yeah, Clute. It's the same sort of instrumentation, but but much darker, stranger mm -hmm. music. Yeah, that's true. So we start with the Fox logo in black and white. Black and white Fox logo. Was, yeah. Do you think there's any intent behind that? Was I think it, maybe it's just a tip of the hat to the old noir thrillers. Mm. Because, you know, one thing, my sort of biggest note on the Nickel Ride is that it looks like a 70s movie, but it sounds like a 50s movie. Yeah. So maybe that was just a little nod, because I think Roth is a huge noir fan, isn't he? Yeah. I was wondering if it was just because Fox had so little interest in the film they stuck an okay. old optical on the front. Yeah, just use that one. <laughs> and then we open um, with some 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 fairly haunting music and uh, Cooper up early with the four a.m. Isn't mind. it? You yeah. see the clock uh, flick over. Well, the sun's coming up and he's thinking about the lot. We do optical cutaways to the lot. Mm -hmm. The block they call it, don't they? This is one of the two times that we actually in the movie that we spend moments inside Coop's mind. Mm -hmm. 
the other ones in sequence we'll discuss in a lot of depth later on. And then immediately after that, we have a very misleading, dodgy scene. I, I really like the scene. I love the way it's shot. I love all the dialogue. In the in the lockup scene? Yeah, I really like it. That was the point where I was like, oh my God, I'm really into this. And that apparently was a reshoot. I'm really surprised. I mean, it feels like a rushed reshoot. It's, it's a really badly acted scene. It just oh, no, feels I like, like it. I, just... like, I like the way the characters interact and everything. Yeah. Yeah. You tell Cooper, you tell him. I mean, you know, and yeah, but it's it just such feels a... really tense and yeah, but the tone, panicked. And... The tone of it's so out of place with the rest of the movie and it's just such broad acting and it, it often feels like you know you didn't get enough coverage so you have to let a take keep running despite the fact that the improv isn't that oh my good God. no I thought it was the opposite I thought like wow they really really judged this well and okay. I love the the, the the panic in the scene you know they're reversing the truck up and they crash into the loading bay you know just dent the back of the truck mm. and you know there's this you know, trying to get rid of the guns hide them in the trunk of the car and this sort of whole panic about what's happening at the same point you start to understand that Cooper who's running this warehouse facility has promised them something that he's not able to deliver yeah it's a it's a big useful exposition scene yeah, isn't yeah it? you can yeah. see that's that's part of the reason it's in there um oh that's really strange I always thought it's the, the clumsiest scene in the film and oh, it is... no, that's the point where I was like oh nice recommendation Matt. this is <laughs> right up my street well this came packaged in a double DVD edition with um like one of John Frankenheimer's worst movies so I put this one on first and it's like is this a double bill of bad movies? Okay, okay. Just on on the basis of this scene, I went all this, the way to America to <laughs> this. This could be really bad, but then it goes back to very very high quality after that. Oh yeah, okay. So this the whole of the scenes that we can talk through now. The first act is the setup, establishing that Coop is trying to get this block of warehouses and and get the deal sorted out, which means he has to go through a police captain, Elias. Yeah, is he a police captain? Is he still a serving officer? I couldn't quite work it out. And some of the um synopsis online talk about him as a realtor and whether he's kind of because Cooper says to him I knew you when you were walking the beat mm. and we see his police badge so it feels like he's still a police officer but it's kind of a grey area isn't it then he's, he's maybe a police like, like a... there's a line of dialogue later on where Cooper talks about needing him for the protection right right which is the police and the mob protection protecting the, the space so they don't get but it's. By the police. I mean, we're talking about him like as, as if he's a police captain, but he's a corrupt police captain, and he's mm. he's, he's in that grey area where he's kind of as much a fixer on that side of things as Cooper, yeah, isn't yeah, he? Elias is. He's on the fence about this deal that Cooper's so desperate to push through. He is really vague about his commitment to it, and I think that is what starts Cooper's anxiety because he's promised the mob that he can deliver this, and it's starting to fall apart. When Cooper's off the phone, we're introduced to Sarah, his girlfriend, girlfriend yeah. partner. Yeah, they, yeah, it seems like they've been together a few years. I get the feeling that they've they've been. It's still quite a fresh relationship. But I really love the breakfast scene. Not not just because the leads are, are great and they're really relaxed with each mm-hmm. other. It's got some really lovely, lovely but unobtrusive camera moves throughout yeah, the whole yeah, apartment. Yeah. You're tracking them down the corridor and then yeah. back again and then into the bathroom. Mm-hmm. This is really, really beautifully choreographed. Yeah, nice seeing this photography before um, steady cam and you know, yeah. just do it handheld. You know, it's it's nice to see like solid camera moves. Yeah, and whoever the camera operator was is is a master because there's so many of these shots where you're tracking along long sections and mm-hmm. you if there was dolly there you you'd see if there was dolly. Yeah, yeah. And it's pre steady cam, so you know you've got a genius camera operator who's keeping mm-hmm. it absolutely smooth. Yeah, and, and a grip on the. On the uh, yeah, and the focus puller, everybody's kind yeah. of nailing it, aren't they? Absolutely. So we've got Jason Miller and Linda Haynes. This is their introductory scene. Should we? I mean, we've talked about Jason Miller before. Yeah, but I think there's definitely 
scope to talk more about Jason Miller. Yes, having, you know, we've, we've basically just kind of patted him on the back for The Exorcist 3 for, you know, turning up and delivering something decent. And, you know, I appreciate how good he is in the first Exorcist movie, even though I'm not a fan of the film. But he's really good in this, and this is his only leading role, and yeah. he's, he's fantastic it's in crazy, this. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's it's... If you're just coming to him knowing him as an actor and you that's all you knew about him and you look at his list of credits, you think, oh, it, it must have been a disappointment that he didn't have a bigger career as a lead. Mm. But it's quite heartening that he had a whole other life as well. I, mean, sure. I didn't realise until I looked into this that you know, he won the Pulitzer Prize yeah, for a yeah. play. And the Tony Prize as well. And the Tony. Yeah, yeah. Oh the same year. So 73, he was nominated for an Oscar, won the Pulitzer and the Tony. That's not bad, is it? He also got divorced in this, in that year, so maybe you, know, you win some, you lose some. Swings and roundabouts, mm-hmm. isn't it? I mean, it's great to look at him at the beginning of his career. We've looked at him at the end of his career. But here, he just shows so much promise. He's got yeah, yeah. this incredible screen presence, and he's kind of relaxed in every scene, even... Even when he's, you know, paranoid and, and losing his mind, it's just mm. the confidence on screen is, is... Yeah, yeah, there's never any overacting, considering, no. like, the spikes and anxiety that the character's going through. And he inhabits, I mean, physically he inhabits this weird space where he looks like he could be anything... Well, he was 35 at this know, point. Yeah, he looks about 70. <laughs> well, he could be anything between 35 and 55, but, mm. you know, he's kind of like an optical illusion. You could put him in any role in that age range and he'd be perfect. Mm-hmm. I don't know too much about him outside of the couple of movies that we've seen but I think what I understand is that he was pretty disappointed with the reaction that this film got and I think that made him pull back a little bit from Hollywood and then I think he was trying to adapt his play and it took a long time and you mm. know eventually he just moved back to his hometown of Scranton Pennsylvania right and set up a, a local theatre company and was just kind of entrenched there again that doc says that he was um, he was disappointed with Hollywood generally I mean it's easy to imagine, you know, after The Exorcist, you'd be offered every kind of horror role. And Didn't everything. he turn down Taxi Driver to do this? Yeah, yeah, which everyone is, is saying was a terrible mistake. But, you know, if you didn't like the material, you don't like the material. Yeah, sure. And I can imagine, you know, after you've got a role like this, which is very, very different to Damien Karras, that, and, and it doesn't go down well, then yeah, you would be bitterly disappointed. Mm. And Linda Haynes. She's I've... great. I really like her screen presence and how confident she is on screen and to play this character that is essentially a sort of sidekick girlfriend role and to bring like real depth to it. Mm. I've seen her in um, Rolling Thunder. Oh yeah, I've and never seen that actually, Rolling Thunder. Don't go in with too high expectations. <laughs> yeah, okay. It is... It's a good pot boiler. Mm. Um, I mean, I know it's been talked up in the last yeah, yeah, yeah. like decade or so as if it's you know a great lost classic. Mm-hmm. Don't think it is. But it's, again, it's, it's got Jordan Cronenworth shooting it. Oh right, okay, yeah. I'll, and it's I'll go and track it down. Then. William Devane and young Tommy Lee Jones. That's right. Uh, she's she's good in that. It's a fairly similar role, but mm-hmm. again, towards the end of that, the relationship gets quite abusive. And she's really good at showing the sort of vulnerability but defiance at the same mm-hmm. time. Yeah, great. She did a movie called Human Experiments, I think. Right. Which I've never seen, obviously. I'm just looking at her IMDb, mm. um, which I think is like a woman in prison exploitation type thing. And then she pretty much retired after that. I think Brubaker was her last movie. Oh, yeah, okay. Oh, that's a good movie. So I think in terms of the movie time, I think we're somewhere around 6am and Cooper's dressed and out on the street, ready to start his day. And it seems a little unusual that he's out so early, but we see later on just how much attention 
he gets once once the day kicks in and he's yeah. surrounded by people constantly like asking stuff from him so to have this quiet hour or so to himself actually makes a lot of sense you know there's already a peddler with a mobile case of chest of the sales yeah yeah there's all of uh, a lot of crap basically that he's <laughs> trying to fence off so we walk along the quiet la streets just after dawn and we end up at uh paddy's bar and grill mm. um which these are some of my favorite scenes you've just said that these are some of your favorite scenes but they're also some of my favorite scenes yeah me too yeah i really love victor french in in these um these scenes to the point where you know i paused it five minutes in i was like right who the hell is this guy Mm. why have i never seen him and what's he doing now and he was actually do you remember highway to heaven i never i remember it but i've never never seen it yeah so i remember watching that on tv and he's the old dude that kind of tags along with him okay. all the way through like 111 episodes so <laughs> he had like a pretty solid uh, swan song i'd say mm. i love these scenes i mean they're just character and, and location establishes but they give you so much to enjoy yeah yeah like in that the, the the wide shot of cooper walking down the street to work it's just you get so much i mean i've got scribbled notes here he's got the kind of dry downtown dust and sleaze but mm-hmm. at the same time uh, morning sunlight's beautiful and you've yeah, got like yeah. slightly misty smoggy atmosphere yeah that's it it's just such a lovely image and the little character details as well the, the way that cooper's so patient with chester yeah yeah he you takes know, something from him doesn't he, he takes yeah, a yeah. lucky rabbit's foot and it's cooper's birthday as well this uh whole opening sequence takes place on his birthday and he's you know he's kind of patient and quiet and tolerant you can see he's a little distracted when when chester starts talking about luck mm-hmm. he's starting to to think about things then things well, are turning about over the block his mind. as well isn't yeah he? you know this thing is keeping him awake at night it's he really has to nail this mm. it's one of those things when you've got something on your mind and everything that you that you see or hear points to that mm-hmm yeah, and then you've got Paddy's bar. Again, nothing much happens, but it's just a pleasure to see Coop having a quick shot mm-hmm. and then looking looking for some eggs and some milk for breakfast and yeah, yeah. Paddy opening up. And mm. uh, and then he pours Paddy a beer. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> it. And Paddy's talking about how he's just had his, the picture of his mum reframed and he's hanging up on the wall, but it's like, she's going to see me die in this place. You know, it's really playing on his mind that this is his life. Mm. But he's also like king of this castle. We see it later on when mm. everybody's there. He's such a lord. And again, what, what you know, what we're losing in talking about it is the fact that it all looks so incredible. It's just got this so amazing, beautiful. beautiful lighting, beautiful framing, great, mm. great camera moves and blocking. Everything about it yeah. just clicks together. And I've got, <laughs> I've got surrounded by a heart. I've got locations. I, I just love all the locations. Yeah, it's great. The street, the bar, and then we're moving now into the into the stairwell into Coop's office. Mm-hmm. But everything about it is so atmospheric; you can almost smell it. You know the yeah, wood yeah, panelling yeah, yeah, that's yeah, been definitely. there for decades and yeah. stinks of dirt and smoke, and mm. everything about it is just spot on. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're in Coop's office now. We're in Coop's office, and we meet Bobby, who's let himself in with a key given to him by their mafia boss Carl, and fallen asleep in Coop's chair, which he takes umbrage at tells him to remember who he's talking to and he's really disrespectful i quite like this character bobby sort of pops up uh, three or four times throughout the film and you know it's always impactful i think he's an important character mm. i think one of the themes of the film is you know you fear of being replaced by the younger generation yeah, that's it and when the difference between how the younger and older generations behave and comport themselves is so different that that really underlines it yeah yeah that's it oh they're not as good as us you know and they're taking over yeah well in this case in bobby's case he's not he's a little shit and he, <laughs> yeah, he yeah. can't help talking and boasting about stuff mm. whereas cooper's really reserved one of the things that i really like about cooper in his office is when he takes 
takes his jacket off. He's got like an accountant short sleeve shirt yeah, and tie yeah, on. This really is work for him. Whereas mm-hmm. for Bobby, it's just like hanging around and driving and beating people up and yeah, boasting. Yeah. And and so Bobby's there to prompt Cooper into fixing a fight and following up on the warehouse steal the block. Again, there's a little interlude which gives me absolute goosebumps of pleasure when Coop's got rid of Bobby and goes out on the balcony and just looks out on the street. Yeah, yeah. And you got this kind of again, it's kind of this sunbaked downtown LA sleaze, mm-hmm. and you can see some of the details of the storefronts and, yeah, and yeah, shops, yeah. and it's it's pretty low rent area, isn't mm-hmm. it? But it's also it's hit his empire as well, isn't yeah. it? You know, he's sort of yeah, the lord of this area. So Cooper's been told he has to ensure that Paulie, who is the local boxing trainer, fixes a fight that evening, and Paulie's last two fixes haven't come in so the fighters have gone against the orders of the mob and not thrown the fight and lost everybody a lot of money so Paulie's on the line for this Cooper's saying to him you know make sure Tanasi throws the fight Paulie's saying that he doesn't really have that control over the boxers anymore maybe Cooper should speak to Tanasi himself yeah. so there's a nice moment between Paulie and Cooper where we know that they're old friends they've definitely got some time in together there's a relationship but the scene with Tanasi I really like as well he's got like this beautiful kind of pug face hasn't he he's been battered in quite a mm. few times and his demeanour is both like threatening and vulnerable at the same time well yeah you get the feeling that he's he's not as close to Coop um, he, recognize, he says do you recognise me and he's like yeah you're Cooper yeah but he doesn't actually know him you know he's yeah, kind sure. of, so he's kind of wary and, and a little bit defensive mm. and a little bit rebellious throughout the conversation mm-hmm. And I did like the way that the um, discussion with Tanazi was was blocked. A lot of it's kind of played out in looks in close-up, mm-hmm. but uh, they framed it. Coop sitting on the back of the bench, so he's yeah, always yeah. kind of like looking down on Tanazi and mm-hmm. kind of looming over him in the frame. And then we're straight into work, aren't we? That's uh, proper day. Cooper work, goes back it? to his <laughs> office. The corridors are crowded. We've seen only seen them empty at this point, and then mm-hmm. they're crowded with people wanting his attention and telling him jokes and asking for his favors and you know if he can you know get them in contact with whichever gangster or for whatever reason and yeah I'll get them space for this yeah that's it so it's like it's really happening um, and that's his day to day life we get that now yeah he's kind of like a fairly mid mid to low level administrator mm. isn't he mm. but it's you know it's work and you think of the mafia you just think of like eating in restaurants and driving yeah, around and beating it. people up but this is kind of like the the keyhole nuts and bolts of, yeah. of the criminal uh, underworld the daily it? grind of making mm. stuff work kind of like a couple of criminal guys come in they've got 200 TVs to offload haven't they yeah. but there's no warehouse space can you imagine what 200 TVs look like in <laughs> 1974 that's got to be like three trucks or something isn't it but it's a really it's you know really handy scene because it you know, highlights how urgent this block deal is not yeah, just yeah. to the bosses but for everyone on for either everyone. side yeah, yeah, he's yeah, getting yeah. pressure from both sides and we've heard really? it maybe a couple of times at this point that you know they call him the key man because he's got all the keys to the city but he's losing his touch mm. I think we've heard that in the background a couple of times now There's, um, this is going to be a recurring theme from me throughout the whole thing so I'm sorry if it's dull but it has beautiful busy frames in this yeah yeah just where you've got everything positioned perfectly you know you've got mm-hmm. your, ob- your interesting objects in the foreground stuff yeah, on the sure. desk and then you've got Somebody use the main object in, mm. in the right, and then some, some really nice interesting moment stuff. where he sits back in his chair and he yeah. just moves perfectly into the composition. Because at one point you're like, "Oh, it's going to be obscured. He's going to be it," and then it's like per- he lands perfectly <laughs> in frame. So pleasurable. Yeah, I mean, if you like 1970s photography, this is this is the movie for you. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And then because it's Cooper's birthday, uh, Paddy brings him downstairs to the bar on, on the pretext that somebody urgently wants to speak to him which would be the one thing you'd say to Coop at this mm. stage in his life mm. that would get him out of the office 
Paddy brings him downstairs and they have a surprise birthday party surprise, for you. Yeah. Which is a nice surprise as well because you just feel like you're starting to get anxious mm. alongside Cooper now and they sort of whip pan into this big collection of sort of pugs and ugly faces. Yeah, you know, it's just all, all the local guys. Yeah, like the it. local hoodlums. <laughs> and they all have like beaming smiles and they're just having a really nice like birthday party. It's yeah. Really, it's really fun. And it feels really genuine. And, you know, these these aren't the guys that you sort of has to do business with day to day, but the people he's kind of like, you know, bumped shoulders with. and, and Yeah, well, we see Harry from the warehouse in the opening scene that you didn't like that. Yeah. I, I really liked. And he's here and he gives him at some point he gives him a brown paper bag as his birthday present I don't know what's in it it looks like turnips or something Mm. but you know these are the kind of guys that he relies on again more of these relationships that he has in the community for running this Mm. part of the criminal world underworld and it's just like beautifully acted and beautifully put together like everyone's everyone's really really having a good time and enjoying themselves and Cooper is super reserved but but Miller plays it just right so there's genuine pleasure that he feels he has to kind of keep keep under wraps yeah but he's sort of a man of few words but he has his like Paddy is his proxy isn't he really he's just sort of like screaming and shouting telling stories about when Cooper first walked into the bar you know 10, 12 years ago or something and you know how he realised this boy had potential and just sort of you know he does all of the talking for him doesn't Mm. he you know clearly like a really nice relationship between those guys and there's a beautiful Bobby moment as Bobby arrives to summon him to see come but it's it's one of my favourite moments in the Mm -hmm. film because it's you know this young guy just just literally as Cooper's receiving his gift and thanking them mm. he just butts straight in he's got no yeah, concern he's for what's like going Carl's on outside he wants to speak to you he's so belligerent isn't he he yeah. sticks his fingers in the cake one of those things that just locks you into the character when Cooper just grabs him by the scruff of the neck yeah. and, and it's just a brilliant character moment you see how 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 steely Cooper is and you understand yeah, yeah. how even if he's amiable and very relaxed and stuff he still does have that steel in him to command things and you can see yeah, how he's held I suppose just, just by grabbing Bobby by the scruff and neck saying you're going to stay here really you're going to eat tight, some cake yeah. Yeah. You, yeah you're going to sit there and then all the uh, the hoodlums just sort of shoulder him and you know these guys they're not like um, skinny runs they all look like they do manual labour they're big mm. sort of thick chested thick armed men you know yeah. who could be 50 years old but are probably only like late 30s mm. given how rough everyone looks in the movie and they just shoulder him back into position at the bar and he he's probably going to sit there and eat cake isn't he yeah Cooper's been summoned outside by Carl who is the next level up in the criminal underworld hierarchy you yeah. know I don't feel like he's a boss no I, I feel like he's you know an area manager something like that yeah quite because he's still talking about who he answers to, the people, and saying that the people are changing, you know, like the changing face of organised crime. And mm, I he's, think it's... he's trying to almost fortify his position, and by that he has to... Lean on Cooper. Lean on exactly. Yeah. The people say, look, check the block. I say, what for? I know Cooper, I know the area, that's all I need to know. What have I got to see? A lot of years, Cooper says something, it goes, period. Right, Cooper? Uh, you ask him to tell him? I'm telling they don't want to hear nothing. You can't talk anymore. All they want is yes, no, right away. But it takes time to make a deal. You got to handle with the guy. A few laughs, a couple drinks, a couple ladies. It takes time and it takes patience. Like I don't know, huh? They don't want to hear that, these new guys. Young guys. Razor cuts, wide ties, goddamn bookkeepers. And lawyers. What the hell do they know about the streets? You can hear from Carl that, that 
things are changing in the hierarchy and and in the same way that people in the lower echelons like uh, like Bobby are coming in who have no regard for the things that have been built up over decades then you you have people in the higher management as well who are who are coming in and doing the same thing yeah, yeah change, changing the old systems mm. It's interesting. I do like the way that this scene and the, the interactions between Cooper and Carl build up this kind of idea. I mean, it's something that's always built up and, and often cut down. The idea of this honour among thieves, that no matter what's happening at the top or the bottom, there's going to be some sort of solidarity between Cooper and Carl. There's going to be an yeah. understanding. Well, yeah, it builds that up, but it kind of uh, pulls the rug out as well. I think you know, mm. the, the end of the film shows that Cooper was right to be paranoid and wary around new faces and the old faces mm. there's a really nice i'm sure you saw it as well that really lovely inventive kind of it's not that long but it's like a tracking shot as they're walking along and you've got the, the, the cadillac alongside yeah, yeah, them it's nice it's really nice the kind of like the dull brown background mm -hmm. and the vivid car in the front it's really nice that the car maintains pace with them mm. as they're walking up on the loading bay there it's just a really lovely composition that just rolls mm. there's a really nice bit of dialogue there which again i, th I think i think is worth quoting lots of changes things they they just aren't so easy like friendships they just don't go so strong anymore you know yeah we go quickly from carl and cooper to carl and cooper when we go straight to the boxing match where we know tenacity is supposed to throw the fight seems quite jarring that you're back to Cooper and Carl again after you've just been with them but I mm. guess this there must have been a deleted scene in between one of the scenes maybe. with the brother yeah maybe because there is supposed to be some time passing and interestingly they don't even show the fight they don't show the fighters they don't show the ring we're just backstage you know we see Cooper talking to Carl about the block again mm. and Carl throws him the uh, curveball of bringing a protege for Cooper to train in the business. Taylor from Tulsa. Yeah. Uh... He's so out of place. It's so, so random. And he's like, you know, everyone's into a browns and, you know, really kind of muted tones. And he turns up in like double denim with like a giant marijuana leaf on the back. He's wearing like a sequined number one t-shirt, <laughs> a cowboy hat. He's like so out of place, but he's so good as well I really love Bo Hopkins in this mm. yeah I just love it that he still turns up in that gear you know I'm sure in Tulsa he probably blends in a bit better but you know rocking up in LA you know he just really stands out mm. and his manner is completely different as well you know these kind of old boys are very muted and very calm and measured in, in their sort of discussions and, mm. and what data and information they share and he's just and he's like just talking isn't he? <laughs> he's on constantly he's a, a tap that's running I love um, the little moment of solidarity between Cooper and Carl when, when Cooper's just quietly kind of endured some of Taylor and, and yeah. turns to Carl and says are you kidding? Yeah, yeah. Carl just laughs. Yeah, again, which, you know, you sort of see that they're not far off being at the same level mm. and that there's other forces at work above yeah. them in the hierarchy. Somebody has said, like, take care of Taylor. So next we have Coop's private birthday dinner. Such a lovely scene, this. It's, lovely character it's brilliant. And it's one of those ones that, that could run the risk of being a little self-indulgent. I remember when I was... I remember the Carney story, the stories that, that Coop's telling of his, of his mm -hmm. past... I remember them from the first viewing and the second time around I was imagining that it would be much longer than it was but mm -hmm. it's it's really nice it's really precise it doesn't meander it doesn't get sentimental yeah yeah and it's not about him being overly nostalgic it's not like him talking about the good old days mm. but what he does do is sort of 
place himself back into that moment and just kind of relives it. Yeah, for other people's enjoyment. Though. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's part of the fun for um, Paddy. You know, him and Sarah put on this kind of little little act for Paddy, who's like paralytic at this point. You know, Cooper was only at his own birthday party for about three or four minutes. Yeah, he's been drinking all Paddy's day. He's been there <laughs> celebrating Cooper's birthday all day. But it's, it's everything about it just clicks perfectly. I mean, mm. you know, Miller and Haynes are just kind of like sparkly and and enjoying each other's you know yeah, yeah. just really bouncing off each other nicely mm. but ag- again everything about it technically and visually is great you know it's a lovely location mm. I always like kitchens and, and bodegas and stuff like oh, that yeah, okay. there's the scene in Altered States that we talk about yeah, as well yeah, they're all around yeah. the, the dinner table there do you think there's anything in uh, the present that Sarah has got for Cooper which is his old watch she's had it repaired and if there's something about time running out or because Paddy has also got him a clock. You know, his two presents on this most crucial of birthdays yeah, I guess. are all time related. So. Yeah, I imagine if, if as I mean, I don't know if it's re- if it's still supposed to be his fiftieth birthday as it was in the fifty fifty mm. script, but yeah, I think I guess it's. I always thought it was his fortieth. It was a significant birthday. Yeah, sure. But yeah, yeah. we start with a clock ticking as well. Don't yeah, all the clock flapping, a seventies clock flapping over the time, and mm. this is the third clock that we've seen in the first like forty minutes. Well, this scene, what I like about it is that we feel like this is it. This is this intimate moment. We're spending time just with these three, you know, maybe it'll play out a little bit longer, but then there's a knock at the door and the whole thing is turned on its head by the arrival of Paulie. And it's, I thought it was really nice visually the way that you go from this kind of lovely warm interior kitchen space out into the into the dark sort of dead bar after closing time. Yeah, yeah. It was it was the wide frame of the bar that, that reminded me of Vilmos Sigmund's, not, not of the more sort of flashy stuff, <laughs> no pun intended, not the more sort of show-stopping stuff that you see in the Altman films, but mm. while well, I say down to earth, but the the stuff that you get in Close Encounters and the Deer Hunter particularly, oh, yeah. where everything is is fairly you know it's authentic. Isn't it? Yeah, it's low key and authentic, but mm. it's just got this magical glow at the same time. Mm. It's got a, a a great feel. Yeah, warmth. Yeah, and I'm always slightly puzzled by the exchange between Paulie and Coop in the bar because Coop, you know, is is very reassuring. Says nothing will happen to you. Yeah, but he tells him to get out of town, doesn't he? He's like, he's basically saying that he'll shield him, but he needs to be out of town as soon as possible so that he's got time to to fix everything. I think Cooper at this point is still confident in his position of influence. Yeah. Next morning we see Cooper. Cooper going back to the office to just sort through his um... the payments, aren't they? From yeah. Local businesses, protection money, you know, payment for services. It's just envelopes of cash, gangster cash. Yeah, sorting through the racket money. Trying to get through daily business with Turner just kind of buzzing around in the background talking. He's got a rifle as well. He said he's bought for his brother as if he's trying to intimidate Cooper. But it's nice that this is the first time that that Turner's come to work and Mm -hmm. spent time with Cooper. And Cooper kind of gets up, leaves the building, Turner tags after him. And Cooper just says, just wait there. Just wait here a minute. A bus will be along shortly and just leaves him. It's the first day at work together. He's no time for him whatsoever. Yeah. But what I like is... um, Turner's reaction to that you know he's not pissed off about it he just like he smiles seeing how the other man's outplayed him you know and just sort of points a a gun finger at him Um, I like Turner all the way through this all of his kind of dialogue with Cooper I think he's a really nice counterpoint to him and he, he has that look on his face of somebody that's just enjoying the game almost of yeah. you know trying to outwit somebody that's much smarter than him and much more experienced and, and he enjoys playing the game he doesn't have to win he just yeah. kind of likes being part There's of this a little, stuff yeah he's enjoying yeah that's it it's the tenacity almost is 
to maintain is more rewarding than to achieve. <laughs> Coop goes down to uh, meet Carl at the pool. Again, more great Carl dialogue. Yeah, let's, let's hear it from the man himself. Down again. Not much. Down is down, Coop. Shrinking all the time. It'll go up. Yeah, I keep saying that. Two, three years now. This goddamn city is dying. All of it. It's drying up. Like a corpse. Sections are choking to death. And then at the end of that meeting, just as Coop is heading off, Bobby can't help himself, can he? He's just, he's, so again, stick, he's, yeah. he's, he just can't help talking about what he's done and, and he just can't keep himself to himself and he's boasting about having... Yeah, he's, he's broken, hobbled Tanazi, hasn't he? Broken so, Tanazi's legs and killed Paulie. Yeah, so he says something about Tanazi's, like, you know, something about the fighter that wouldn't go down, now I, now he can't stand up. And then um, and then he says, like, Paulie's never going to stand up again because he's in a box. Cooper remains kind of completely impassive and stoic. You can see he's, he's beginning to lose his temper, but he's stoic throughout until Taylor just crosses the line and Coop beats the shit out of him. Gives him a proper kicking, doesn't he? Yeah. Really, like, knocks him all over the lift. <laughs> yeah. You feel, like, the panic as well from Bobby is, like, clearly outclassed in the uh, in the fight game. It's very satisfying and cathartic, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. it's, it's the first... I mean, it's nice to see, to see him gripping Bobby early on, but mm. to see him actually kind of put him in his place. Yeah, yeah, punk. Turner stops by the apartment and in an amazing driving shot. Don't you think um, just that moment where we're in the apartment with Cooper and Sarah and she's mm. bandaging his stomach? Yeah. I didn't get that, why why he needed a, a stomach bandage all of a sudden. I, I'm guessing Bobby got a couple of punches in or something. Well, we don't see... All we see is him like a rag doll being like mm. slapped down and, and it just doesn't look like he gets anything in at all. No. It's. I guess it's puzzling. I mean, maybe there's something that was cut that we missed. Mm. Yeah, it's a really nice driving scene. Sorry, I interrupted you there. No, 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 it's okay. okay. It's a really nice driving scene of uh, (laughs) Turner just talking and talking and talking. Mm. But the the fact that it was again, this is something about the authenticity Mulligan was going for with this Mm -hmm. is that you don't get you don't get any process shots, do you? You don't get any kind of back projection or any of the shortcuts that you could do. No, on uh, Adam Zanzine's uh, video essay, he talks about how that's Eric Roth had written that scene that day, and Bo Hopkins had to learn all of that dialogue mm. and drive the car at the same time, and mm. he said he was quite nervous about pulling that off. Yeah, with a massive rig strapped to it on his side. <laughs> yeah, that's and it's thundering yeah, through the streets. Yeah, yeah, it's a busy street. I mean, they must have had to have blocked the lights to get that long, continuous shot. You know. Yeah, I don't know. It's lovely though, isn't it? Yeah, it's country amazing. western music playing as well, <laughs> which is really funny because it's like super annoying. And and you know, beautifully exposed as well. You know, to mm. get to get the foreground and and everything absolutely sharp, and then still got that like, amazing background detail. Yeah, it's lovely. You know, soft focus lights and all that. He's not really saying much though, is he? He's just talking about his life, uh, you know, and how he thinks his father would like Cooper and they'd probably get on because they're men a few words and yeah he's trying to talk himself into thinking of Cooper as a father figure that sort of thing yeah but I, I think as the audience we're supposed to be with Cooper who's really wrong footed by this doesn't know what's going on yeah. he's starting to like his paranoia is starting to to creep in and his anxiety is creeping in and the next few scenes of him because Turner said we have to go to your office to meet Carl mm. Carl's not there Cooper's on his own. He hears Turner walking around the corridors, um, and then he just comes in to use the toilet. Mm. Carl does eventually stop by, and he explains that the latest the mob are going to agree the extra ten thousand that Elias has asked for. Yeah, but the key line for me for Carl, which which I'll 
come back to. He says to Coop. You see, the only worry is the pressure. You're like a computer and we can't afford to have it break down. I, I do think it shows some awareness on the part of Carl and his superiors that, that, that they know that Cooper is not necessarily responding as well to this pressure from all sides yeah, as sure. he could do. You know, he's, he is starting to get paranoid mm -hmm. and it is starting to affect his judgment and the way that he's doing things. Yeah, that's it. I mean, we're side by side with Cooper, so we're seeing this whole experience from his point of view. But if you imagine looking at him mm. from the outside, maybe they could see that he's starting to unravel. And indeed, he's paranoid enough to get him and Sarah out of town. Um, and there's a long kind of moment on the highway where he feels he's being followed and quickly pulls off to one side and pulls his gun and, and it's just a car passing. Yeah, that's it. And he finally admits to himself and Sarah what's bothering him. What is it, Coop? What's happening? The business is off. No people, no faces. Things change. No blood. Things change. Tired, you know. I can't think straight. I like the way that it was lit by the red tail light. Mm -hmm. um, this kind of like hellish red light. Yeah, sure. I was wondering what was the first movie that where that was consciously used. Oh yeah, okay. Because um, you see it, you see it a lot in you know, obviously in Goodfellas yeah, is the yeah, one that yeah. comes to mind first. But I wonder what the first movie to use the red tail light of a car as kind of mood lighting for was. Mm. Maybe it was this. <laughs> It's a good trick, isn't it's it? It's a good, really good trick. Okay, so yeah, sorry, I was just backtracking slightly there. Now we're at the cabin, which is absolutely idyllic. Yeah, yeah. Visually. I mean, you get sort of one minute of peace, don't you, where they get to the cabin, they mm. open the windows, they, they go rest for a nice... for a moment. Yeah, they yeah. rest, they go for a little row across across the lake. It all seems like, okay, now he's going to breathe and relax, and oh. they get back to the cabin, there's just like muddy footprints and his gun... I've gone. got a note scribbled here with a circle around saying such a brief interlude. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly that. I mean, for me, it's like slightly long, but I think, you know, this is the thing with the film. A sequence like this that seems overly long, actually, the point is that it's not about narrative storytelling, it's about character storytelling. And Mood. as he's um, sinking into his anxiety, that what's really nice about this moment where they take him from the city and out to the countryside is you see how much he feeds on all of that energy of all those other people and how much those relationships mean to him and when you just leave him out in in the countryside by himself or just with his his girlfriend and he has none of that other interaction yeah you just how his smiling mind, yeah he? that's yeah. it how his mind starts to go and i think first time you see the film it's a little bit deflating to go from all of that energy and a vibrancy into this you know it's, it's picturesque but you know it's pretty boring as well yeah and then an intruder in the cabin and then this, this is something that um used to be like film craft 101 that seems to have been lost a bit these days um is that the the film is quite you know smooth and controlled and the camera movements are perfect but then when you want to increase tension then you go handheld mm -hmm. But it seems that seems to have been lost in contemporary grammar. Yeah, um, do handheld for everything. Though. Yeah, handheld for everything. And there's a there's a really nicely edited sequence where Coop is just kind of looking through the looking through the cabin yeah, to see if there's anyone still there. Exactly. Yeah, but really you keep nice. cutting back to a shot of Sarah waiting, mm. which I think they must have done in one sort of long push in on her. But you keep yeah, using yeah. sections of it just to see her response. So Cooper's paranoia crescendos with uh, the muddy footprints, and he bolts out, leaves Sarah behind, goes and gets 
shotgun goes and gets new locks for the doors I mean, we see him kind of fix that stuff he's quite manic fixing that stuff onto the door yeah and at the same time he's getting more and more tightly wound and not actually telling Sarah what's going on yeah at some point he says to her you know I shouldn't have bought you this is a work thing it's not fun and she's like yeah I know um, and then I think we get the sort of penny drop moment which I think we get it maybe a second before Cooper does for the first time we're a step ahead of him when he goes to the lodge to speak to Elias about the deal and there's nobody at the lodge mm. at all. He's just been sent out to the countryside and left here. That moment for me, that was kind of wind out of the sails. I really felt felt for him then. Yeah, and you would have thought that that would be the point where you just head straight home and try and iron things out, yeah. wouldn't you? Turner turns up at the cabin, adding to Cooper's mania. And uh, there's a really nice little exchange where Cooper says to him, you know, you walked muddy footprints through my cabin and are you collecting 38s Turner just looks at him and says there you go with those crazy ideas again you know just this lovely little smile on his face where you think just for a second is he telling the truth you know is this kind of in in his mind in Cooper's mind then the next stuff really is about Sarah trying to help Cooper you know trying to get him to talk about what's happening you know it's it's almost like the heavily involved therapist that wants him to open up about this stuff so that he's able to externalize it and process it and it takes them like fighting in the corridor to finally get him to crack and, and start talking yeah some some mild domestic violence that um yeah it's really horrible that isn't yeah, it it's smoothed over more quickly than is comfortable these days mm-hmm. i mean obviously we're assuming that you've seen this movie i can't imagine anyone getting that like an hour into this discussion <laughs> this sounds good <laughs> and not having watched it yet but um there's a an, a fabulous fake out dream sequence that i was completely taken in by yeah me too first me time too. round cooper falls asleep he's woken up by um turner who's like happy sunday <laughs> and and then they sort of race through the woods turner disarms him and then blasts sarah with the shotgun mm. And then we see Cooper desperately trying to revive her. And then he races back to the cabin and we get a whip pan to him still sat asleep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. I mean, again, it's beautifully shot um, and blocked. All the, all the kind of chase and the violence is shot in these kind of like tight, loose, mm. handheld close-ups. Um, I wonder if they were shot kind of further away and shooting with a telephoto or something because you've got that kind of flatness, cropness to it. But yeah, it really works. It's, it's, it's one of those things where you, it's, it's a great change of technique. Yeah, um, it's really jarring. I think... The first time I watched it, I felt a little bit cheated because Sarah's death had such a big impact. I've, I really felt gutted that this innocent bystander, you know, very sort of positive spirit, had been blasted in half by a shotgun. And then she's suddenly alive again. I felt like it was a bit of a cheat. But on second viewing, I just felt like I was totally in Cooper's anxiety, his, uh, you know, his state of mind. Well, that's that's what I think the important function of this sequence is because um, I'll come back to this again I keep hinting at some great revelation at the end of the discussion but I'll come back to this at the end yeah. but it really puts can't wait, you can't wait for your closing uh, monologue <laughs> it puts you absolutely in Cooper's paranoid view of events yeah, yeah. Um, and it colours the way that you think about everything that's going on You know, even though, even though you know it's a dream sequence before and after this you kind of accept it as if this is the level that events have reached yeah that yeah. he really is in that kind of physical danger yeah 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 um and you go home thinking oh my god he really is in that level of physical danger you don't actually consider that it's it's a, a paranoid fantasy mm. that it's something that he's dreamed but anyway that that kind of drives him back home yeah but there's a lovely moment after he's woken from his dream and he's looking at her and you can see that he knows he's responsible for her 
and that he's dragging her into harm's way because this deal is slipping through his fingers and it's a really precarious situation mm. that, that she's very close to. No, you're abs- yeah, you're absolutely right. So Elias didn't show the hotel. And Coop heads back and the first place that he goes when he gets home is to see Elias at home. Yeah, I mean, he tells Sarah to pack, or not to unpack, in fact. He says, don't unpack, we're going to Vegas tomorrow. We just mm. need to sort this out now, once and for all. But then this, oh my God, this is gutting. This scene where he goes to see Elias and Elias just says, like, the deal's not happening, Cooper. And it does it does say quite a lot about the, the amount of authority that Cooper's lost in that he can go and see Elias at home mm-hmm. with his family there in bed, you know, in the middle mm-hmm. of the night. And Elias is nervous, but not too nervous to tell him. He, he just, you know. Yeah, it's like Cooper is the last one to know this, you know, that his time's up. Mm. Cooper says, you know, how am I going to tell Carl? And Elias says he already knows. And you realise that Cooper's out of the loop. You know, Elias can't even be bothered to finish the sentence. He just says, I even... And then he's like, no, I've got, mm. I've got nothing. You know, mm. I'm just letting you go. Then it's the station. Well, yeah, then there's there's a whole slew of scenes which come and go really quickly. You kind of don't appreciate them the first time around because you've, you know, you've gotten into the mood of the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you just want to know what's going on, don't yeah, you? Yeah, you all know what's going on. You all know what's happening next. But if you don't stop, you've missed some of the most like beautifully photographed stuff in so the entire lovely. film. The whole thing, yeah. It's yeah. like a, a cinematographer's montage reel, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's, it's so incredible. Gorgeous. The beautiful kind of burnished, and I, and I wonder if, if it was flashed a bit as well in the, in, in the railway station. Mm-hmm. And then the kind of red, white, and blue of the cars in the, in the yeah, wide yeah, as it's yeah. pulling away. And then you, you know, you've got the dive bar where he Mm-hmm. sees injured Bobby just out of hospital yeah yeah really short scene but just really nice mm. I, I mean think... you know this thing where he puts Sarah on the train to get her out of harm's way and then we're like 10 minutes from the end of the film like it just like races through to its conclusion mm. but all of the stuff that we see is is fascinating and you know it moves through it at, at quite a clip yeah yeah but it's all great to look at you know the, the, the tracking shot through the hotel through the hotel where he's looking for turn around the yeah. corner and onto so the photo yeah. and, and you know into the lift um yeah, the, the the bar interior, uh, and then finally finds Carl in a restaurant. Just backtracking slightly, I did like the fact that Bobby was like slightly penitent and trying to make up for being such a dick in the past. Yeah, yeah. he's there in the bar, isn't he? By himself, but like, his arms in a sling. <laughs> Lost his job. Yeah, his face is all battered, and he's like, "Do you know anyone looking for a driver?" Mm. Back to square one, isn't he? And then Coop finds Carl in the restaurant. It's a lovely high-end restaurant. It's so yeah. good because I think Coop goes in believing one thing and comes out believing another. Mm. And he's wrong. But I think this is something I only realised watching the film again last night to make final notes and polish and stuff. I think there's a possible way of looking at this where Coop isn't in any danger at all. You know, I, I'd always felt that the way that Carl calms him and the way that he kind it's of. It's brilliant, yeah. It's really convincing. Yeah, and you're absolutely convinced that, you know, the first time that you watch it, you think, yeah, Coop is in a really dangerous position. Yeah, yeah he's, gone, Carl, he's gone too far and Carl's pulling him back and just Carl's, saying, like, calm down pulling him back and saying you know you'll be fine don't worry but lying to him yeah yeah uh, and that's the whole thing about honor among thieves there's no mm. such thing you know he's just been lied to and there's a, an attempt on his life in the very next scene but what if you look at it from another way like so much of the film is from coop's point of view that you take on his paranoia yeah particularly with the dream sequence where you think okay well this is the level of violence and danger that we're at mm. if you look at it from another point of view where you know uh coop is an important part of the machine. He's a level-headed, ordinary guy. Like they say, you're you're a computer. We don't want that to go wrong. But when it starts going wrong, and despite the fact that Carl's reassured him throughout the film, look, 
it's going to be fine, it's going to be fine. Maybe there's the possibility that if he doesn't pull off the deal, fine, the deal will happen anyway, as Carl says, and he'll still be in his position doing what he does because he's mm. good at his job. Yeah, exactly. Maybe it's, just, maybe it's just his paranoia taking over. So when you reach the point where he's so distressed that he'll threaten Carl's life in a restaurant, yeah, yeah. maybe that's the point where Carl realises this computer's broken, and that's, that's the point where Carl realises, okay, this isn't going to work, he's yeah, threatened yeah. my life. Yeah, yeah. And that's what leads him. It's not like the accumulation of all these little things yeah, that are building yeah. up so to So you Cooper's think he downfall. was safe until he sort of revealed himself? I'm 50-50 on yeah, it Yeah, okay, no, it's a good way of looking at it. Um, it only literally occurred to me last night when I was making notes on all the things that Carl was saying and then mm-hmm. realising that the dream sequence affects so much of how you perceive the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That it occurred to me that's, you know, it's possibly a valid way of looking at mm-hmm. it. What about this idea that... Um, Turner is operating on his own because you know Carl says that he's left everybody says that he's out of town but he's still maybe he just wants to because you know he's he's probably not a very good uh, doesn't probably doesn't make a good contribution to the to the business so maybe he is being sent back to Tulsa and just on his way out wanting to well it could be I, I mean I always thought that that was just an outright lie from Carl that Turner was there to step in you take on Cooper's yeah, paranoia so you think right well you know Turner's there to take him out and take his position it's not like Turner's up to the task of uh, running yeah. that kind of empire is it? but you know he's just there to, to, to be there to, to kill him if need be just mm-hmm. to always be there nearby mm-hmm. hanging around for that to happen but I don't know um I always thought it, you know, when I was watching it initially, I always thought that, that Turner was, was still around and that was just a lie from Carl because Carl's been stringing people yeah, along yeah, all, yeah. The way, all the way through. Turner's place in my sort of second theory would be, you know, that you just got called back, so look, we need you back to do what we were talking mm-hmm. about. This has suddenly gone off the rails. Yeah, I like that idea of Cooper was probably actually safe because Carl's rationale for, you know, if it doesn't happen this week then it'll have to happen next week or the yeah. month but it's going to happen because we need it Coop's skilled and he's a good negotiator and he has he, all he, those relationships at ground level yeah and it would have been helpful if he'd been able to broker the deal through but if he can't it doesn't mean it's not you don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater mm-hmm. he, he's still very very good at his job theoretically and he would be able to manage the whole thing even if he hadn't pulled it off so yeah I think there's a there's a, a way of looking at it where you might think that it's Cooper's paranoia is that's it. Well, then if you put the plot secondary to the character and it's about the character's anxiety and how that affects his ability to make decisions and mm. to be judged, to have good judgment and ultimately leads to his uh, to his death. And so Cooper has left the restaurant and I think he believes that Carl is sincere about them meeting up because, you know, he's had a shave, he's putting his aftershave on, mm. you know, he's ready to kind of go out and meet up and kind of get back to business. When we see Turner step out of... Uh, the shadows and with a silenced pistol and just start blasting. He announces himself, doesn't he? Which yeah. It's not best move for an assassin. He's not brilliant, though, is he? <laughs> <laughs> no, but, you know, but I think he, he's smarter than he acts. Yeah, but he is, he is still part of this younger generation who talk more than they do. Yeah, sure. Um, that's the difference between a successful and an unsuccessful assassination <laughs> attempt that costs the life of the assassin as well as the uh, yeah. intended target. It's quite brutal, isn't it? Just launches himself out at Turner and throttles him to death with his bare hands. Yeah, yeah, it's very, um, it's a very real feeling. Murder, it's it's repulsive. You know, yeah, like it's an ugly death for a character that you want to die, but you kind of, you want to look away at the same time. It's a really, yeah, brutal mm. strangulation. There's, there's a lot of horrible details of kind of kind of um, strangling sounds, isn't mm-hmm. there? Kind of. Yeah, it's not how you want to go. And then in the final scenes. Coop continues dressing despite being mortally wounded and 
picks up his stuff and uh, heads out and then you cut to uh, another beautiful kind of LA morning very early in the morning same as the mm-hmm. one early in the film and you can see Chester the salesman scooting mm-hmm. his box across the roads um, yeah we see Cooper sat outside of Paddy's bar and Chester's talking to him from a distance as he crosses the road and then Paddy turns up and is talking to Cooper as well who's just sat there motionless outside of Paddy's bar and then Paddy Paddy realises that he's dead and, and starts to break down and, and you kind of cut to a close up at ground level of Coop's mm. keys falling out of his out of his back pocket that's it that's it that's and the end credits. of the terrific film yeah it's really good so the movie was finished in early 1974 and selected for Cannes in May 74 alongside uh, movies like The Sugarland Express, The Last Detail, The Conversation. Yeah, yeah. Actually, thinking about it alongside The Conversation, I mean, do you think The Conversation tackles anxiety and paranoia better? Yeah, I think it has slightly more psychological depth. This is really subtle. I think you you could easily view it without even looking at the anxiety of the lead character and just feel like the pressure but I think if you view it again with your sympathies tuned into somebody's suffering anxiety mm. and I think uh, yeah, it really comes to life I mean it's weird when you look at it amongst the company of those other movies at Cannes I, I personally would rate it I like it more than Sugarland Express I think Sugarland Express is visually very clever mm. but I think it's a slightly lesser movie or I like it less anyway. but I think it, it definitely sits comfortably with the yeah. last detail in the conversation. Yeah, yeah, it's it's you know it's it's head and shoulders with those. Mm-hmm. I guess it's indicative of how good a decade you know the seventies were. Yeah, sure. There's so many good films that something has to get lost in the shuffle. I guess, yeah. I'm very very sad that it's been so thoroughly lost. Mm. I mean, it's literally dropped off the radar completely. It's my you know prize selection for this podcast so far in that it's it's the most obscure. I think it's such a shame because it's such a, a solid piece of work. You know, I can't see any reason why. It, should have disappeared I think that's the most frustrating thing if if there was something in it that was dated really badly or if there, there was just some element of it that failed yeah I think part of the reason I think what it needs is recontextualizing it's still being viewed as a like a, a minor 70s movie and like you know the DVD that I bought this with is is partnered in a two disc set with one of John Frankenheimer's worst movies the Nickel Ride should be being shown in double bills with, if not the, the Friends of Eddie Coyle, then yeah, you know, yeah. maybe The Conversation. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it should be perceived to be a film of that quality, but mm. it's not. It's seen as being just you know, like a throwaway bargain bin release. And I think it, it needs reframing as, as a quality film. Didn't Tarantino project it for a festival like 20 years ago or something? Yeah, it was one of, one of the films in his first kind of Quentin Fest shows in, in Austin, Texas in 96. But the thing is, it's like, I mean, this is purely my point of view, and I know it'll prove unpopular, but I think Tarantino likes everything, and I don't think it necessarily helps anything that much that Tarantino shows it. I wonder how you get it back onto onto the radar, how you make it part of the film conversation. It's beginning to pick up traction online now. Oh, is um, it? Yeah, I mean, last night looking through to get like screen grabs and stuff mm-hmm. when you put together the YouTube version but there's quite a lot of blogs have, have picked up on it and, oh, and film yeah, okay. sites and stuff. So, I mean, hopefully it'll it'll pick up some traction. I, I would love to see it restored. Let's wrap it up, shall we? Uh, I have to say, given its non-existent status and how much I enjoyed it this second and third time round watching it, I'd have to give this the highest recommendation 
that people just rush out and try and view it. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm gonna <laughs> gonna, gonna have to look far and wide to find a copy. But yeah, that's it. I'm gonna probably trawl eBay and start scooping up DVDs to hand over to people and mm. tell them not to give them back, just to keep paying it forwards. Yeah. Um, and I think this is probably of all the films that we've watched, the one where I really have to thank you for <laughs> for for selecting it because uh, I think I messaged you when I was like ten minutes into it. I paused it and I was just like, "This, what is this? This is incredible. Why have I never heard of it? Mm. Why is it so good? What's going on?" Like, you know, like I said before, I'm fairly sin literate. I've never heard of it, and it's you know, I don't know like if masterpiece is the right word. But yeah, it's, you don't want to come to it expecting. Yeah, that's it. You, you don't want to set off all the fireworks and then disappoint every other person that goes to watch it. Or maybe if you take into account the fact that we both like like seventies cinema very, mm. very, very much, and that's probably why it's ticking a lot of boxes. Two anxious middle-aged men <laughs> watching a film about an anxious middle-aged man. So yeah, I mean, absolute highest recommendation from me. It was the best thing I bought when I was in America. Right, okay. I was really, really excited when I watched it. I was like, "Oh God, this is like, <laughs> yeah. this is like bottom of the list, and it's amazing." Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, if if the point of what we're doing is to draw attention to lost classics, then this is the yeah, definition of that. Yeah, absolutely. Mm.